Welcome to Moving the Needle, where we highlight innovators doing needle-moving to create generational wealth and strengthen America's inclusive competitiveness. We're excited to bring you this episode, and we couldn't do it without the support of our sponsors. Live Oak Bank is on a mission to be America's small business bank and has the privilege of helping thousands of passionate, driven entrepreneurs turn their dreams into reality. These small business owners aren't in it for the fortune or the fame. They're in it to make a difference, just like Live Oak. As the top SBA 7A lender in the nation, Live Oak works tirelessly to treat every customer like they are the only customer. Going above and beyond is simply how Live Oak operates. They strive to deliver an experience different than what you typically expect from a bank. Their customers remain at the center of everything. You can learn more at liveoakbank.com. All right, let's get to the show. We're at a pretty critical moment here to really take this whole conversation about growth and scale, whether it's early stage tech, or existing companies already of size and scale, and how are we making sure that underrepresented, disconnected populations are participating? Because again, if we think we have economic disparities today, they're only going to get worse. If you fast forward this picture, and we don't have meaningful intervention like we're talking about today. Welcome to Moving the Needle a fresh new podcast that explores how social innovators and problem solvers are doing transformative work in cities and rural communities to create new pathways for generational wealth creation. This is Jonathan Hollifield. And I'm Christopher Gergen. As your co-hosts, we're here to lift up solutions that are giving us hope and can light the way for policymakers, community leaders, philanthropists, private investors, and engaged citizens who care about addressing long-standing economic inequities. Christopher, I've known today's guest for 15 years. In that time, I've seen his vision challenged and his work grow from a groundbreaking idea that at its inception perhaps just made too much sense into a national model for rapidly scaling black, brown, and women-owned businesses. Our guest is Darren Reedus, CEO of the Cincinnati Minority Business Accelerator within the Cincinnati USA Regional Chamber. And Jonathan, I have followed Darren's accomplishments over the years, but it sounds like what he's done in the past is just an appetizer for what's to come. The Minority Business Accelerator has launched a $100 million transformational equity capital fund to fuel the creation of larger scale minority owned businesses. We'll get into what that means and the specifics of the fund later in the conversation. But first, let's give the audience a little context on Darren's background. Yeah. Darren is no overnight success story. He enjoyed a flourishing early career as a senior bank executive in Cleveland, where he was one of the few bankers and one of the even fewer Black bankers who held business loan approval authority. His credit and risk assessment background, coupled with his own grit and resilience, really prepared him for his current role. 
that word got around town. If you need a loan, you know, go see Darren. And so whether I wanted to or not, I became fairly popular, particularly with underserved uh, entrepreneurs. And so particularly African-American entrepreneurs. And so I rarely used that authority, but the fact that I had it drew a lot of attention. And so I would assess where entrepreneurs were approaching me in terms of their readiness for capital. Where do I have to get you uh, to raise the bar to be prepared for the bank's credit committee? And so just that began this process that I've been blowing holes in business plans as long as I can remember. But he wasn't just tearing apart the business plans. He was providing guidance to those entrepreneurs who didn't really have an investable business, at least not yet. You hear a lot about access to capital, but I like to talk about, you know, readiness for capital. And so I recall for so many years in the same path and journey that I was just speaking about is being this lender that I I was approached, of course, often, you know, I I would frequently have uh, entrepreneurs really not necessarily understand, one, what the financial statements are actually telling you. And when you're a trained sort of risk assessor, you know, the financials tell a story. And so, and when you get enough questions thrown at you in credit committee, you start probing, right? And so the combination of one, even just making sure entrepreneurs kept and maintained good records, as, as simple and straightforward as that may sound, Oftentimes for entrepreneurs, they're so busy selling and trying to drive revenue that they'll get to their financials come tax time or what have you. But are they really keeping accurate monthly financial statements as a decision making tool? And so I actually found that after 16 years of the banking side, actually this began my economic development work when I actually left corporate America in 2003 and created my first entrepreneurial venture as an as an outsourced CFO group doing the things for small businesses, particularly entrepreneurs of color, that I saw they had a gap or challenge with when I was requesting information from entrepreneurs, especially as well when, it, when we talk about putting together a credible set of financial projections rooted in a credible set of financial assumptions, because it's the assumptions that make the numbers make sense or not. And so that is often where you find if there's a real credible growth strategy, when you start pouring into the assumptions behind financial statements. Well said, you know, Darren, I know you from your leadership in Cleveland. And Did you, in your career, did you come across any points of clarity or epiphany where perhaps you realize that the infrastructure that supports underestimated entrepreneurs and underestimated communities perhaps wasn't aligned with the best opportunities uh, in the credit uh, readiness standards expected from the economy? Yeah, great question, Jonathan. I think there's two things that that come to mind most for me from an infrastructure and sort of systemic standpoint. 
And one, and to this day, quite frankly, when we talk about uh, access to capital, that broad term that we hear so often, historically, when you look at most of your, your access to capital efforts, particularly for, if you go back, you know, several, well, just decades now for minority business efforts, access to capital programs by the federal government, et cetera. Most access to capital programs have been about debt. Very little has been about equity. And so they are night and day different animals. The preparation, uh, we talk about capital readiness for debt versus equity are two entirely different things. I don't know how many times over the years you know, I would receive a a watered down, very conservative set of financials, someone trying to perhaps get a bank loan and be as conservative as they possibly can to approach a risk averse audience in, in lending. And if you take that very same watered down business plan to an equity investor, you'll often get laughed out the room. They need to see the upside. They're willing to take risk. And so you're talking about a risk-oriented audience on the equity side and a risk-averse audience on the debt side. And there's such a gap. When we talk about some of the statistics of less than 1% of venture capital and private equity are entrepreneurs of color, well, well so much of that is also in, rooted in the, the systemic networks and relationships with angel uh, investors and venture capital firms. It's two different worlds, debt and equity. And so how do we create more pathways and, and readiness for the profiles and characteristics of things that really are attractive to equity capital? And it's not just in sexy technology. You know, I've had a lot of uh, experience over the years helping to scale up companies, whether they have a sexy technology or not, because it's the same upside growth potential that investors want to see. If you have a, a compelling value proposition, if you have a competitive advantage, uh, something that's a barrier to entry, all the same things you want to see on a tech company, but you often don't have to have a patented technology to scale right. up a company. But, but if you're not really understanding what real growth and scale is to an equity investor, versus, again, debt, they're just night and day different. You know, I want to build on that, Darren. It's really interesting and I think an important distinction because the capital readiness, to your point, is two-sided, right? You need to be able to prepare entrepreneurs that are trying to scale their enterprises, both on the equity and on the debt side. You came from the debt side, you came from banking, you then go in-house being able to run a basically CFO consulting firm, being able to go in-house to a number of different companies to help them scale. And then you start getting on on the investment side, back on the investment side, which we'll get to in a couple of minutes. But as you went through that process and went through that journey, and maybe to build out a little bit on what Jonathan's question was, where did you really see some of those gaps? Was it in the early education side of the entrepreneurs themselves so that they just simply didn't know how to navigate the land of private equity and figuring out how to navigate the world of banking? And if so, how did you start to lean into some of those challenges and how did you leverage maybe the broader ecosystem of initially Cleveland and then ultimately Cincinnati? Yeah, so without 
being too long-winded on that, Chris, because I've got, you know, quite the winding journey in that regard. It was interesting, and Jonathan mentioned an epiphany. Prior to me leaving corporate America, if I go back, and it it just so happens to be literally 20 years ago, because it was 2003, and I was, uh, you know, share my age. So 20 years ago, I was a 36-year-old senior VP, you know, flying around on corporate jets. And for all intents and purposes, life was good. I, however, found myself increasingly just unfulfilled in the role that I had in, in senior level management, often uh, being the only person of color, started asking myself that question. Why am I always the only person of color in the rooms that I'm in? Maybe there's more to this journey that I've been on, maybe that's for a reason for me to identify uh, all these unique experiences that I'm receiving, relationships that I'm able to develop that so many others are not. So maybe there's something I'm supposed to be doing with that, which ultimately led to me starting this first CFO, outsource CFO group that I mentioned. And so it, it was an awakening from the standpoint of I recall so vividly at that time, there, there were so many studies being done. People were trying to learn about, you know, where's the state of, of, of particularly minority business. And I felt like I was a literal walking study. I, I, when, I, when I mentioned to you that for years, from the early 90s to 2003, it didn't matter the size of company, stage of company, sector, industry. I was assessing and analyzing businesses all the time. And there certainly was a consistent theme about, uh, frankly, just the overall handle slash appreciation, diligence to the financials. It is a critical decision-making tool. So for example, all of my preparation for committee, loan committee and such in the early days, ended up being some of my most valuable coaching opportunities for the entrepreneurs, because I would literally go line by line through their income statement, comparing one year to the next, uh, looking at every single expense item as a percentage of sales, and, and it begins to tell a story. And in so many cases, entrepreneurs aren't even keeping those that level of detail on a regular basis to even know when it's time to increase their, their prices because costs have been increasing and they haven't increased you know, their, their prices accordingly. Or just the, the number of things that are happening where folks are just so busy often trying to just drive revenue into their company, they're, they're missing this financial side. So when you take that reality and then we start talking about, well, how do we grow? Let's just say it's a half a million, a million dollar company. I recall so often, you know, putting questions to folks, how, how do we get you to five, 10, 20, 25 million dollars in revenue? And I recall so often that it wasn't even thought about. Darren, I can't even think about that, right? So because it's it's the realities of just, you know, getting to the end of the day in many respects. Uh, how do we, I access some of these markets you're referring to, Darren. So when I think about 
we're talking about access to capital, but the same can be true for access to markets, you know, how to properly position yourself, you know, for these markets. And to my conversation about the lack of preparation for equity capital, so often, if you understand a growth opportunity in detail and you can package it up accordingly with respect to what additional resource you may need, whether that's physical resources, human capital, systems, et cetera. If you can understand and quantify the revenue opportunity that you may be going for, the market that you may be going for, but this sort of analysis, especially at that time, I just found was just absent. So there was just such a radical difference between just the very basic how do I put some numbers together to get a relatively modest bank loan versus what's really required to properly position your company for real capital? And one other real quick piece, back to your point about a systemic issue, you know, Jonathan, when we talk about scale, I recall so vividly uh, when I when I started my outsource CFO group, it just so happened that uh, there was also in Cleveland, one of the country's first tech accelerators that was just getting off the ground. Well, oh, ho, ho, hold on, hold on. <laughs> you you can't be in my notes because this is an introduction to another question. Okay, okay, okay. And that question is, from your community background, observation of the economic development landscape. Yes, sir. Talk about the evolution of what became what we might call new economy, innovation economy, infrastructure over the past 30 years. Yes, sir. Where in underserved and underestimated communities, we perhaps are still operating out of a great society community infrastructure. Yes, sir. So it's interesting. I just, at the very same time, I had left corporate America and started this outsource CFO group. Just so happened, you know, Cleveland happened to be creating one of the country's first tech accelerators. Born from its, you know, well-publicized economic challenges, Cleveland had obviously lost a lot of big companies over the years. And so how do they just create some new ones of size and scale, key size and scale? And so the to your point about infrastructure, you, know, you began to, you know, have, uh, you know, appropriate focus on the kinds of businesses that could be attractive to venture capital and the like. What became really interesting as I ultimately later joined that organization, because I was actually being courted a bit from my CFO group, because I was sending some of my, my clients over there, questions began to swirl around where are these prepared uh, minority entrepreneurs coming from? And so they kind of traced it back to my office. And so to watch the process of the level and depth of serial entrepreneurs, mainstream, uh, providing depths of assistance to emerging entrepreneurs, 
I, I started just to compare and contrast even just the service models of that versus what typically happens in the minority business community. Um, when you talk about things like technical assistance, means very different things in the tech landscape versus the minority business landscape. You're talking about, in most cases, woefully underfunded uh, support organizations in the minority community, inability because of resources often to bring on experienced coaches. So you might get a junior person that maybe is spending a little bit of time with you here and there, or maybe a one-to-many classroom environment versus a very deep dive, customized, regular meeting schedule with a serial entrepreneur who has already gone down the venture path. And so if you didn't have any sort of either sexy tech company or at least the ability to articulate something that was venturable, you just didn't get that kind of assistance. And so it became pretty obvious that the kind of help and assistance that quote-unquote, scalable entrepreneurs are receiving versus what I was looking at on a day-to-day basis on the minority business side were, were just dramatic. And so I began, when I joined that organization, just to do everything I could just to have more entrepreneurs, you know, put their name in the hat, to just have some experienced coaches that are used to scaling up companies start, you know, massaging their business idea, even if you're not yet ready, especially in those days, all you really needed was a three to five page summary. You didn't need a full blown business plan. And and so it is so dramatic. And then if I think then and now about just growth sectors, when we talk about the, the types of industries that are attractive to venture capital. Let's just name a few. When we talk about AI and robotics and advanced manufacturing and alternative energy, we just go down the list. The eyeball test alone of those industries will tell you that you don't even see workers of color. We, we know that so many entrepreneurs are first cutting their teeth in in industry before they decide to spin out as an entrepreneur. So I'll submit, if we don't even have people of color working in growth sectors, if we think we have economic disparities today, fast forward this picture uh, 10 years from now. I'll go one step further. Now that we've had over the past 10, 15 years, this explosion of tech accelerators around the country, If you go to each of the portfolios of most of these mainstream tech accelerators, you're not going to typically see very much inclusion. And even for the, if you will, mainstream businesses receiving uh, venture capital and such, even the management teams, um, are the management teams of these emerging companies diverse? Are the angel investors in these companies diverse? The board, your point about wealth creation, Jonathan, These are wealth-creating engines, whether you're an entrepreneur or not. And so even we're disconnected even as investors. And so when you talk about infrastructure, when you talk about the gaps that very much still remain, there needs to be some focus, in my humble opinion, on what pathways uh, we're creating uh, to 
venture-backed industries. This is on the early stage kind of uh, place, but it, it's just scale, equity capital, which are hand in hand, is still such a dramatic, uh, it's just a disconnect in so many ways. And I'll share one more real quick example of that. I won't, I won't call the city out. Uh, was not Cleveland, <laughs> but when I was doing some broader consulting work, I was often charged, and this this was one of my later consulting opportunities before I came to Cincinnati, and I began to advise communities on their tech ecosystems. And part of that was how do you connect more underrepresented populations? And so as part of that, as I, of course, was very close to the mainstream organizations, I, I had to reach out to all the African-American leaders, et cetera, running organizations to, to try to create some bridges between the two. And I recall so vividly that I would show up and look at their agenda for their access to capital conversations at a lot of these minority serving organizations. And it was, to my point, all, always about debt. There was no mention of scale, equity. So I would say, well, can we at least complement your agenda by talking about access to equity and not just debt. Now, I would often get a lot of pushback. Well, Darren, that's not where our entrepreneurs are. I will then say, you're exactly right. And if you don't introduce it to them, who will? And so we have, sadly as well, no fault to anyone, but we don't have that many leaders and coaches in underrepresented communities that understand equity capital either. And so as blunt as this is going to sound, is often the blind leading the blind. And so how do we create, again, it, it is such a critical component because it is just, you're not going to get equity capital if you're not properly prepared, for, yeah. period. Yeah, I mean, the, in, in the numbers, you know, the numbers just lend themselves to this, right? We know that of the 2 million plus Black-owned businesses, less than 125,000 have any employees at all. And the vast majority of them uh, have less than 10 employees. And that's just, it. I think, the a key reflection on exactly what you're talking about, Darren. Let's take a break. Today's episode is brought to you by Sherm. Our partners at Sherm, the Society for Human Resource Management, have created better workplaces by supporting diversity, equity, and inclusion throughout the world of work and society. It's why they developed the Together Forward at Work initiative to drive racial inequity out of the workplace. It's why Sherm made a capital commitment to support minority-owned business enterprises. And it's why they are partnering with us at Moving the Needle to support the call for inclusive economic development opportunities. Together, we can help workers realize their full potential in their work and in every aspect of their lives. So you can learn more at SHRM.org. That's S-H-R-M.org. Okay, back to the show. Let's get back to moving the needle. Before we go on, Christopher, I just want to share an exercise, and I'll call the state because I was a resident of the state, to make this point even more vividly. 
just did a keyword analysis of the Ohio Third Frontier program. Yes, sir. Which is a major two point one plus billion dollar tech economy investment. Just a groundbreaking program. A great program. Did a word comparison with the Minority Business Development Program. No overlap. Mm. Nothing that was in the Minority Business Development Program came up as important to the Third Frontier. And none of the language of the Ohio Third Frontier Program was a part of the Minority Business. It was complete separation. Absolutely. So that illustrates right. the point. And those growth sectors he's talking about is why we focus on the competitiveness levers of the U.S. You got it, Christopher. That's right. You know, and it goes exactly directly to what, you know, you've written about so eloquently, Jonathan, in terms of how do we actually become more inclusively competitive uh, in this. So I think, Darren, that brings us now to the current day. Maybe you can allude a little bit more to the couple the extra steps that got you there. But I want to make sure that we get enough time to really unpack how you've been able to take all of those lessons learned along the way and apply them in the context of the Minority Business Accelerator. Because I really do think it is a national model that not enough people know about. And that's why we're so excited about having this conversation with you to help to amplify the story and the model so that hopefully it can be emulated and replicated other places. So if you can help just walk us through what is the Minority Business Accelerator? How did you and others uh, on your team come up with the idea? Where are you going with it right now? And, and where do you see it going? Thank you, Chris. Yeah, this it's, it's uh, an extraordinary opportunity and scenario on so many levels. But Real quick context prior to coming to Cincinnati. So after I left this tech accelerator we were just talking about, I ended up forming another group about seven and a half years later that was called Main Street Inclusion Advisors when I would go out and try to advise other communities on infusing inclusion into their tech ecosystems. I did that for about three years and it was very eye-opening Uh, to find the consistency of the lack of inclusion from community to community to community. And so I got to a place where I felt like as rewarding as some of that work was, you, you found, of course, communities at different levels of willingness and readiness to even accept the recommendations that you're putting forth. So I said, well, if I could maybe just find a community that I could just do the things that I'm suggesting others do, And then hopefully have folks come to us at some point and say, how did you guys make that happen? That became sort of the next phase for me. And so it just so happened that I received a call about this opportunity in Cincinnati. I was aware of the Minority Business Accelerator from my work in Ohio over the years. Part of what I was looking for at the time was a foundation of some good work that I could build upon. And at the time, this was 2016, This was um, about 13 years in at at that particular time. This is an effort that is particularly focused on scale. Uh, Scale in this particular case, meaning that these are are minority businesses with at least a million dollars in revenue. Uh, Importantly, this effort 
when it launched back in 2003, it was launched because of the uh, on the the heels of the civil unrest that took place uh, in Cincinnati at the, in 2001. This was the region sort of one of their primary response to try to create some economic parity, uh, specifically for the African African American community. So it was then and now a supply chain focus. How do we prepare more African-American companies to do business with the corporate community? So they had to have some size and capacity to begin with, which, again, was defined as a minimum of a million dollars in revenue, a B2B or B2G business model, and the desire on the part of the entrepreneur to scale further. I uh, had the great fortune of inheriting about 40 active companies in the portfolio at that time, as a group doing about a billion dollars in aggregate annual revenue. Among other things, I was charged with taking this work to its proverbial next level that I'll be, I'll be quick about, which we defined as growing that base by an incremental billion uh, and creating uh, several thousand more jobs. It had created about 3,500 jobs when I had come along. To get to this billion dollar lift, we created a framework that we call Grow, Build, Attract, and Create, four pillars. The Grow pillar is really let's just grow our current companies of size to their next level. Unlike today's accelerators, we, we were an accelerator, frankly, before there were accelerators going back to 2003, and we don't really graduate companies. Every year is a re-up because there's always another level. So the Grow pillar is let's keep Keep growing our companies, even if, if they're at 25 million, how to get from 25 to 50. If they're at 50, how to get from 50 to 100. So true scaling up companies. Our build pillar is pipeline building, which is companies under that $1 million threshold that we believe have high growth potential. And importantly, we try to wrap services around these high growth companies, as we described earlier, that typically sexy high-tech companies will receive, but if you don't have a sexy technology, you don't get that kind of support. We try to bring that to, to pipeline firms that are scalable, uh, under a million dollars. Our track pillar quickly is trying to attract larger minority firms here in gaps of where we don't have them. Importantly, that's really more about expansion. We're not trying to get a minority firm in another community to uproot and move, but if they can do business here, how might that incentivize them to put an office here in the region? And finally, what's getting them probably the most traction that's leading to the fund we just launched is this create pillar. How do we create more larger scale minority firms by way of acquisition of existing mainstream non-minority firms, if you will, with aging business owner, no business succession plan, no case in the company interest in taking it over. And you're, and you're going to find trillions of dollars in that reality. You're already seeing big private equity companies trying to take advantage of that. It is the reality of the baby boom generation getting older, those that are also business owners looking for an exit at some point here soon. There's no succession plan. We all we don't always have to grow organically from the ground up when there's so many existing companies already at scale and operating in sectors that we typically don't see a lot of minority firms operating in. So we're really trying to take advantage of that reality. And so the combination of that grow, build, attract, create work, uh, working concurrently to get to this, this uh, upside of a billion dollars. 
The fund just launched recently. It will primarily invest in that create pillar, but it will also invest in that grow and build pillar as well. So I'll pause there if there's any initial questions on that. One of the things that I uh, find to be really interesting about the Minority Business Accelerator too, and it goes to something that you mentioned uh, in terms of the acquisition and the relationship to supply chain. Can you talk us through that in terms of investing in businesses that are legacy businesses owned by traditionally white founders and entrepreneurs, and it's a way to basically change the ownership structure and then position that business to be able to effectively compete on the supply chain side, especially as we're moving more and more into prioritizing minority-owned businesses, authentically minority-owned businesses, because we've seen a lot of blackwashing over the years Absolutely. as well. But I, I want to go to the authentic black-owned business that has become a black-owned business because of the acquisition strategy that now puts them into an incredibly competitive position that accelerates that growth. I find it to be an incredibly elegant model. Yeah, it is. It is an extraordinary time that we find ourselves in, and there's so much of this to unpack. Um, so to build on that real quick, and I promise I'll, I'll pull back in what you just asked, Chris, but what's really interesting is the tragic events of, of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and obviously many others of a couple of years ago, uh, the summer of 2020, was frankly for us a bit of an inflection point where you had a, a, a nation of unrest. And so you, you then began to see city after city after city looking to respond to the moment in some way with most of those responses, at least in part, looking at how might they support more Black-owned businesses. So the nation began to search and hunt for models. And at that very same time, here we were, had already received a fair amount of national recognition before those tragic events. But as I mentioned, our own model 20 years ago, born from our own civil unrest, and we've become a, a model of, of uh, not that we figured it all out by any stretch, but we've had some good, some good traction. And it just so happened that that very same time that summer, we had just released a playbook of how to create a minority business accelerator that was funded by the Kauffman Foundation. So the credibility of that Kauffman Foundation, you know, sort of funded playbook has certainly expanded just the, the number of communities that we're talking to and the opportunities. So to come back specifically to your question, you're also seeing a lot of big corporations making big announcements about doing more business with particularly, you know, Black and Hispanic entrepreneurs. But what doesn't get communicated often is the fact that uh, a lot of these big commitments, if you kind of dig further, unfortunately, are not necessarily coming to life. A big part of that is because we're getting back to the reality of scale. If you're going to do business in a corporate supply chain, you have to have some scale and capacity to do that. So it's also happening at this very same time, as there's been this awakening more nationally, if you will, that we're missing scale in many respects. As we have now 20 years into working with corporations, et cetera, when you examine the supply chains, you're invariably going to find 
sectors and, and, and lines of business that we just don't have very many minority firms of size and scale. So they're gaps. And it is those very same gaps that can inform acquisition opportunities. Uh, so we're able to actually inform the types of businesses that we can go after, that we know that there's a desire on the part of corporations to do, to do business with, because we know what the supply chains look like. And so take a scenario where, and this is really getting a lot of, of interest with our our bankers and CPAs and law firms. Take an example of a, a $10 million non-minority manufacturing firm. And we know manufacturing as a sector is one of those that is largely void of, of, of entrepreneurs of color. When you think about the nature of manufacturing with its capital intensive nature, heavy assets and machinery overlaid against historical lack of access to capital for people of color, of course, you're not going to see a lot of minority-owned manufacturing firms in today's landscape. But let's say we, we have an opportunity to acquire into that, that space. There's a $10 million manufacturing company. It becomes a $10 million minority-owned manufacturing firm by way of acquisition and the fund that we're, we've just launched. Our ability now to drive revenue to that minority-owned firm post-acquisition and grow it from 10 million to 20, 30, 40 or better is, of course, no guarantee, but it is also quite possible. We've, we've had some success doing that historically. And what's really exciting for the bankers, CPAs and, and attorneys is that their, their client, the seller, has the opportunity to ride that upside through an earnout. And that would be a unique earnout because they happen to sell their business to a credible minority buyer. And so I like to tell the bankers and CPAs and attorneys, at bare minimum, we're going to bring more credible buyer, just additional buying pools to your client, the seller. But we also might have the opportunity to create a unique earnout opportunity for your client as well. So it's a true win-win scenario. It is at the heart of corporate supplier diversity because there's just the reality of the gaps that I just mentioned and the lack of scale. And we and this scale piece, as much over the years as advocacy groups have tried to get corporations to shrink the size of their contracts and all of that so they can be more relevant to small businesses, it's just not reality. And so you've got to have more companies that have the ability and the wherewithal to take on these bigger contracts. Darren, I'm going to come at you with three lightning round okay. questions. So give me a succinct response. Yes, One, draw a direct line of sight between the investments and scale companies into wealth and job creation in underestimated communities. Sure. I mean, the direct, when we think about how wealth is created, so much of that wealth comes from exits. We see it uh, very much, of course, in just mainstream entrepreneurship. And while, of course, there are some successful examples of underrepresented entrepreneurs, the numbers, of course, don't compare. So, so the wealth creation that happens on the back end of scaling up a, a, a scalable business that you can transfer that wealth to your family, that's true wealth. Uh, that is so many of your 
most wealthy individuals, if you look at their backgrounds, uh, it's entrepreneurship. And actually, let me just add, add on real quick on the lightning round, job creation. I mean, talk about uh, if you look at the history of, again, minority-owned businesses tend to hire more talent of color. Uh, and it creates an enormous opportunity to be able to significantly scale up the talent pipeline opportunities. And if it's done well, especially within a private context, you have options, you're able to diversify the wealth creation, that exit then has a trickle down effect. So not only do you get more livable wage jobs, but you also get people participating uh, in the actual wealth creation of that respective business. So it has all these trickle down effects uh, that I don't think we should lose sight of. My man, that's why we do. That's why we co-host the Moving the Needle podcast. Yeah, Darren. and it's well said, Christopher. And if I may, Darren, go ahead. If I may, real quick, to build on what Christopher just mentioned, which is which is significant. So you know, a lot of historical data will tell you that you know minority-owned firms will typically hire four out of six workers are are people of color versus kind of one out of six for a non or majority or non-minority-owned firm. But because of the lack of scale that we talk about, you can't optimize that four out of six sort of tendency. So take that same reality to a, a more scalable business, right? But, but the important part that I really don't want people to miss is that scaling up minority-owned businesses absolutely will create employment opportunities for underrepresented populations, but it also creates employment opportunities for everyone. So for everyone. And so I think that's often a big miss, like this is a zero sum game when it's not. And so we're talking, we, we hear all the time now about this, this talent problem, this talent challenge. Part of it, we're not even looking in the whole population, right? And so we have a lot of talent on the sidelines that could be in the game, but they're disconnected for all the reasons we've been talking about. So getting more entrepreneurs of color, scaling up companies. We see so many examples of, of entrepreneurs doing training and such on their own, trying to get more people to participate in these job opportunities. But we've, we have to have the kind of vehicles in terms of more sizable businesses of color to really impact this job piece. And so it is a huge opportunity just to get more job creating engines in the broader community. Well said. Second. Let's see if we can do lightning round versus lightning storm. Absolutely. It, it's, it's, it's a slow moving storm now. Um, <laughs> but well said. Well said. Um, I'm interested. I have some history in Cincinnati as well. Have you found unique qualities in the Cincinnati market? This is a largely a supply chain effort, yes, right? Has the consumer products ethos versus a more manufacturing heavy region where much greater capital intensity for companies as well? Can you just compare and contrast what might be unique advantages a place like Cincinnati might have? Without question, it's it's well documented the impact that you know Procter and Gamble, for example, has had on the community without question. Um, and then also, quite frankly, the sharing of best practices that comes from that. But but I will tell you, Jonathan, what has been just so refreshing from the, the moment I walked in, in the door here 
was just the genuineness of the the intentionality to try to get it done. As as you and I both know, there's often a lot of we'll just call it lip service that's given to this work, um, and not true commitments starting from the top of the house down at these big companies. And so it was not accidental that this work was housed in the mainstream chamber. That's one of the things that creates sort of the secret sauce, if you will. But when you look across the country, you won't see very many efforts of this type within a mainstream chamber. And the few that you will see in most cases were born from those communities coming to Cincinnati and learning about our work here. It is, I'll give a real quick example. When you think about the realities of most minority serving organizations on the outside of mainstream business, trying to knock their way in and participate versus in our case, uh, because we're part of the chamber every month at the chamber board meeting, there is discussion about the Minority Business Accelerator and how are the corporations engaging and participating, et cetera. Who wants to come to the board meeting always with nothing new to share, with with no progress being made? So there's built-in accountability uh, to get the work done. And it's not an accident. It's been around 20 years. And so I think, broadly speaking, while absolutely there are certain drivers like a Procter & Gamble, it is also throughout the, the community, and it's not by any means perfect. I don't want to send the message that Cincinnati has, has gotten it all figured out. But I would tell you that having been in this space as long as I have, that um, if I can have a very real conversation with CEOs in this community. And Jonathan, you'll appreciate this. There are certain communities you can't even have that conversation, right? And, we right? Know. and so, um, <laughs> and so just the realities of being able to meet with a group of dedicated business leaders, this is a community that's, that's very much on the right path, certainly a lot still to figure out, but the leadership is committed to it. And it is absolutely refreshing to be able to work in this space with so many business leaders, community leaders trying to figure it out. Look forward to it. Christopher. Well, I just want to, before we bring it to a full, a full close and we can keep this relatively short, but I do want to help unpack a couple of the tactical elements here in terms of the fund that you've put together and your primary investors and what is in it for them. Because I think the fact that banks are primarily helping to underwrite the Minority Business Accelerator and they see it, they see the advantage on multiple fronts. Can you just help walk us through that? Where are you in the fundraising? Where are you going with it? And then we, we're going to definitely figure out the playbook piece of it, but also where can people learn more about the Minority Business Accelerator to dig into it? So sort of going a bit in reverse order, minoritybusinessaccelerator.com. Our website has quite a bit of information on there that will capture a lot of what we've talked about today. And there's also contact information if there's just more specifics that folks may want to dig into. You know, when we're when as we are getting our fund established here, we are very clear that while this is certainly has this community impact or impact investing kind of feel and flavor to it. 
This is also very much economically driven, right? And so we are absolutely, you know, endeavoring, if you will, to, to return a meaningful return back to our investors. And so this is not charity. This is not a philanthropic effort. And so one of the challenges, quite frankly, has been where in the bank is does this bet best fit? Because we're not your typical sort of philanthropic sort of effort. Uh, we're not focused on micro enterprises. Um, and so there is there is a the reason I started in part with the banks, as I mentioned, I'm a longtime former banker. I knew this would not be a difficult sell from the standpoint of the banks understanding the lack of equity capital for for minority entrepreneurs. They see that all the time, trying to get deals done, uh, just and the the capital access challenge. So that that wasn't going to be a tough sell. Their clients are the very same small to mid-cap mainstream firms with no succession plan. I knew they would get that. So it's a a natural sort of linkage and opportunity. Uh, And they don't want to lose those clients as well. So this is a way for the banks to demonstrate additional commitment to their own client base, as well as weaving an inclusive commitment to that same work. And so there is a market return that we are looking to 10 years from now. This is a 10-year fund. Uh, We've got our work to do, of course, to make sure that the companies that we invest in will grow and scale. And and part of that will be driven by the supplier diversity piece that we spoke about. We have the ability to control in many respects the revenue opportunities that are going to our portfolio companies of the fund. And so not to overcomplicate it, but this also bleeds into a reality in the minority business community where we have uh, a lot of larger scale African-American and Hispanic firms, those that we have of size and scale that often don't have succession plans either, right? And so we frankly may stand to lose ground if we don't figure out some of that as well as what we've talked about on the tech side. And so we're at a pretty critical moment here to really take this whole conversation about growth and scale, whether it's early stage tech or existing companies already of size and scale, and how are we making sure that underrepresented, disconnected populations are participating? Because again, if we think we have economic disparities today, they're only going to get worse. If you fast forward this picture and we don't have meaningful intervention like we're talking about today. And just to reinforce uh, the value of the minoritybusinessaccelerator.com website, I think one of the interesting things that's on there is exactly how the investment vehicle works, how it's broken down in terms of the money that you all put in, the money that the entrepreneur puts in, uh, the debt that then can help to support that, and then, again, some of the ongoing benefits that come along with it. So there's so much to continue to unpack, obviously, uh, as far as this conversation goes. But I think, uh, Jonathan, it's time for our now truly lightning round conversation. Absolutely. Yeah, that was more of a slow that moving was a slow moving story. I, I, I take full responsibility. Well, you know, we 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 create a, a space for our friends, Darren. So uh you you brought it to us and we appreciate it very much. Um opening question. What are you reading these days? What's captured your interest these days? Well, to be totally transparent, I am reading through a myriad of 
private equity funds. <laughs> <laughs> to be to be completely honest, uh, just immersing myself in as much of what's out there as possible. Very good. Fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, well, hopefully you're also able to listen to something as you're leading, reading through all those uh, you know private placement memorandums. And, uh, <laughs> so anything that uh, is, it's getting you fired up or, or soundtracks that you particularly like to listen to as you're digging into those financials? Wow. You know, so so Chris, I, I am a classic old school guy. So you know, I have uh, a a series of of, of R and B and jazz. So everything from you know Kim and Najee and Anita Baker and uh, Earth Earth Wind and Fire, and you go down the list. And so I, I when I come down from my often quite intense days, you know. I like to kind of you know be a little laid back with my music. <laughs> uh, it kind of just helps me unwind. So I've got a pretty, I've got a nice little groove of tunes that I'll share one day. <laughs> very good, very good. Uh, well, we have a couple of things in common. I'm an old school soul man myself, so I get that very much. Uh, Darren, thank you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for um, sharing your journey. And perhaps more importantly, this innovative, as Christopher called it, elegant model that really captures multiple points of competitive advantage, aggregates them into a solution that really has broad applicability. Congratulations on your work. And good luck with the rest of that 100 million that you're on the hunt. Yeah, and I also want to just uh, echo my thanks. And not only thank you for this conversation, but also the work that you've been doing over the course of the last 30 years. I really think that you've been a pioneer in this field. Uh, as uh, as many people will say, you're going to be, you know, it's a 20-year overnight success. <laughs> but I, yeah, I, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. It's, it's, and I think also a really important message there, too, is the importance of sustained commitment. You talked about George Floyd back in 2020. The risk that we're at on that inflection point is that we don't continue to invest and see it through. Uh, and so in that is, uh, you know, Cincinnati has really stepped up its game and been a model for that. Hopefully many more communities, uh, we can look 20 years out and say, hey, uh, the Minority Business Accelerator was just the beginning of a true movement of capital redeployment uh, to create the kind of inclusively competitive economy that we need for our, for our country. So thanks again, Darren. Really appreciate you joining us for this conversation. Can't wait to continue it uh, in, the, in the weeks and years to come. Probably my pleasure. And if you guys want to ever have a, a part two, let me know. There's quite a bit more we can dig into and unpack. Without a doubt. So I appreciate you having me on today. That was Darren Reedus with the Cincinnati Minority Business Accelerator. You can learn more about the Accelerator, how to become a portfolio company, or how to become a capital investor by visiting MinorityBusinessAccelerator.com. Thanks so much for listening to Moving the Needle. If what you heard resonates with your mission, do something about it. Leaving a rating and review and sharing our show with your network is greatly appreciated. But what we really want is for you to get involved and find a way to move the needle in your community. Moving the Needle is hosted by me, Jonathan Hollifield, 
and Christopher Gergen. Editing and production by Earfluence. Music from Bart Matthews. And cover art from Devin Lewis Designs. We are also particularly grateful for our sponsors. Live Oak Bank and Society for Human Resource Management, or SHRM. We hope each episode introduces you to leading edge change makers, informs you about what's possible, and inspires you to action. So get out there and do some needle moving shit. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, we have a couple of books for you. The first one is written by me, Jonathan Hollifield, called The Future Economy and Inclusive Competitiveness, How Demographic Trends and Innovation Can Create Economic Prosperity for All Americans. In this book, I answer the question, can America win its economic future? The answer is an emphatic yes, but I have concerns. Our nation is facing unprecedented global economic challenges. Although the economic narrative of the 20th century, in many ways, served America well, it will not, indeed it cannot, meet the needs of the 21st century. Today, we need all hands on deck, particularly those who have not competed well in our nation's best opportunities, Blacks, Latinos, rural humans, and others. In this book, I lay out an exciting way forward for America to inclusively compete to win the future. That's The Future Economy and Inclusive Competitiveness, which you can find on Amazon or movingtheneedle.solutions. And I can tell you that Jonathan's book really is a great read and provides meaningful insights into the issues we all care about. And while we're at it, you may also really enjoy a book that I, Christopher Gergen, co-authored with Greg Vanerick called Life Entrepreneurs. Life Entrepreneurs, as you may find out, is a clarion call for those who are interested in integrating their lives and work with purpose and passion. In the book, we tell stories of people who have infused their life and work with energy, impact, and fulfillment. In writing Life Entrepreneurs, we had deep conversations with 55 life entrepreneurs who have intentionally and creatively designed their lives to be able to create truly extraordinary impact in the world and deeply fulfilling lives for themselves. We had a great time writing this book, and its lessons have impacted every aspect of my own life and the thousands of readers who have checked it out. So you can check out Life Entrepreneurs for yourself on Amazon or movingtheneedle.solutions.